This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Let's pray as we look into God's Word. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the grace to hear your Word, not only with our ears, but to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. The glory of your name. Amen. In 2006, a journalist called Elizabeth Gilbert published a memoir, you may have heard of it, called Eat, Pray, Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across India, Italy and Indonesia. It went to the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for 187 weeks, earned her two appearances on Oprah and became a movie starring Julia Roberts. Now, like many Many people, she'd realised that our contemporary world is filled with meaning substitutes that don't work. Property, career, money, entertainment, even romance. So one night, in her desperation and sadness, Elizabeth Gilbert cried out to God for help. And she says that she heard the voice of God speaking to her. This is how she describes it. It was merely my own voice speaking from within my own self. But this was my voice as I'd never heard it before. This was my voice, but perfectly wise, calm and compassionate. And this is what my voice would sound like if I'd only ever experienced love and certainty in my life. How can I describe the warmth of affection in that voice as it gave me the answer that would forever seal my faith in the divine? I would call what happened that night the beginning of a religious conversation, the first words of an open and exploratory dialogue that would ultimately bring me very close to God indeed. Now, this was the beginning for Elizabeth Gilbert of an international journey of self-discovery, which began with leaving her husband and her home. It's no accident that the three countries she visited all began with I. In Italy, she eats. In India, she meditates and prays, and in Indonesia, she meets a new man who becomes her husband. Because at each step of the way, Gilbert's search is not to find God, but to, way, a way, to find a way in which to have herself as God. She sums up her theology in these words, God dwells within you as you. The God she meets at the end of her quest asks her nothing more than to be herself. This God speaks to her in her own voice because this God is in fact her own self. And this God says apparently, yes, what this God wants is always what Gilbert wants. Eat, pray, love is just one example of a theology that has Western culture in its grip. You find it everywhere in our education system, in our company culture, in the stories that we tell each other. God dwells within you as you. But this is actually horrifying. If God dwells within me as me, speaking for myself, then I really would be an atheist. I know for one that if I were God, I wouldn't trust me. And I certainly wouldn't worship this God. For this God, the God allegedly within me, is not worthy of my worship. It is not almighty. It is not the creator. 
It is not all wise. And you know, it's not perfectly loving. In Genesis chapter 35, Jacob also hears the voice of God calling him to a journey. God says, Arise, go up to Bethel, which means the house of God, and settle there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. What Jacob has heard is a call to worship God. And the God he is called to worship at Bethel is the God who appeared to him when he slept on a stone all those years before, when he was fleeing for his life. And God had said to him back then, I will be with you and I will bless you and I will give you many descendants. And Jacob saw in his dream, you remember, that ladder reaching up to heaven, a gateway to heaven itself. But now, many years later, has Jacob forgotten this moment? Had it grown a bit dim in his memory? Now God has caught him and said, go back to that place, remember that place, and worship there the one who spoke to you those many years ago. And so Jacob gets his huge family and all his household and tells them to prepare for the journey to this holy place. We're moving, he says. So what are they to do to prepare for this journey? Well, three things, says Jacob. Firstly, put away their foreign gods. Secondly, purify themselves. And thirdly, change your clothes. If they're going to meet the God of heaven, the true God, then they need to change. They cannot come as they are. They need to get rid of all their idols and they need to smarten up, repent in other words. A change of clothes is not some form of magic, but it symbolizes a changed way of living. To worship Elizabeth Gilbert's God, you need to be your true self. To worship the true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has, shown, who has shown you grace despite what you are like, you need to change yourself. You cannot worship him and cling to your idols. You cannot come to worship him and not change. Now, if I'm honest, Christianity in the eastern suburbs has become a pretty tepid and apologetic affair. We've preached a gospel that says, come as you are and stay as you are, if it's all right with you guys. Sometimes we presented a God who is almost apologetic about being God, a God that only asks for a fragment of our time and a portion of ourselves, a God who is grateful to feed on the scraps of our lives that we are so kind to give him. We've come to him, but we've tried to cling simultaneously to our idols, our money, our status, our lifestyles. And we're the kings and queens of exceptions, aren't we? We are the entitled ones, the ones who believe the normal rules don't apply to us. You can see it in the way we drive and in the way we do our taxes and in the way we attempt to worship God. We approach him as the entitled, those who think we have special dispensation from him to stay as we are. But Jesus demands too that we purify ourselves and change our clothes. The New Testament often uses this idea of changing clothes as a metaphor for the Christian life. We need a good dose of spiritual sanitizer to let the Word of God cleanse us by the power of the Holy Spirit and to take off the stained clothes of our old selves with their selfish desires 
and to put on the new clothes that Christ gives us. What will that mean for you? What idols do you need to put aside? What, What change of clothes do you need? How do you need to purify yourself as you come to worship the true God? Only you will know exactly. But you cannot come to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and not change. When we try that, it shows that we haven't let yet learned. We haven't yet learned who he is. And that's crucially what Jacob learns in the second part of today's passage. He moves with his family to this new place of worship, Bethel, and sets up an altar to worship God. And then God speaks to him a second time. And in this passage, in these words, God reveals himself to Jacob. And that is where Jacob discovers himself too. Firstly, God reminds Jacob of that new name, Israel, the name that he first got when he wrestled that strange man at Jabbok. We heard that last week. And this name is a new identity for Jacob, which actually is a discovery of who he was all along. For he is now to be called Wrestles with God, or God Wrestles with Him. It's a name that says that even as you wrestle and struggle, you do so as the one who is my partner. God says to him, now your relationship with me will define who you are. In fact, it is who you are. It is who you were all along. Truly knowing yourself then is about coming to know the God who made you. Come to God and God will reveal you to you. If you want to know yourself, find God. But you don't find yourself or God by gazing into your own navel. You'll only find their belly button fluff, believe me. Now, let me be frank, you mightn't like what you find on this journey. For Jacob, his journey into the heart of the gracious and holy God was humbling and painful. For the woman at the well, Jesus telling her everything she ever did showed her her own shame. What you won't get from this God are soothing and ineffective lies. You'll get the searing truth of his holiness and you'll get the power of his love. That's what's extraordinary about what Jacob hears next in verses 11 and 12. Who is this God who is speaking to Jacob? Who is this God next to whom all the idols of the world are nothing? God says, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, I am El Shaddai. I am, says God the God who is all-powerful. With a word, I set the path of the sun, and with, with my power, I made the seas. With me, you are in the presence of pure power, the unstoppable force, which means that there are no unmovable objects, the unimaginable gravitational forces that, forces that spin galaxies and explode stars is at my fingertips, As Psalm 104 says, He makes winds His messengers, flames of fire His servants. His power is not partial or temporary or piecemeal. He is not merely the God of the harvest or the God of the underworld or the God of the sea. Now this 
is a fearsome name for God. It is a name of unimaginable strength and it ought to make us tremble to hear it. Archbishop Cranmer, who wrote the original Anglican prayer book years ago, wanted us to hear this name for God over and over as we, came to pray, as we come to pray to him, lest we forget that we are approaching the God who is almighty. This God, this God is worth our worship and our prayers because this God does, just give, does not just give us his sympathy, he is powerful to answer our prayers. But notice something else in what he says to Jacob, this El Shaddai, God Almighty. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. What does this God Almighty, El Shaddai, do with his power? To what is his power directed? His strength means grace for Jacob. His power lies within his promises. The word of a promise that he makes to Jacob is a word that does not, will not, cannot fail. El Shaddai, you see, is both strong and kind, powerful and gentle. He is just, but he is gracious. He is almighty and most merciful. He not only can forgive human sin and shape history to bring about his purposes, he also wills it to be so. He freely chose to be the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and now too of Jacob, of Israel, so that through them he can reconcile the world to himself and in blessing them, bless the nations of the world. And he chooses now this almighty God, El Shaddai, in Jesus Christ, to be for you and me, to be our God. In Jesus Christ, we too are enfolded into these promises that Jacob heard, and we share in this promised blessing. And in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we see the power of God displayed, a power that will raise us too along with him. So what did Jacob, now Israel, do when he heard El Shaddai speak? He set up a memorial in stone at Bethel, the house of God. It was a pillar set up to remind him and everyone else of the place where God had revealed himself to him, where El Shaddai, God Almighty, had spoken of his power and his promises, lest he forget we too must remember the place where God has revealed himself to us. That place is special, but it's not a location. God Almighty shows himself as almighty and most merciful in Jesus Christ. And it's to him that we come week by week, wherever we are, to remind one another of the power and of the promises of the living God, who alone, without exception, is worthy of our worship and for whom we must cast down, put away our idols, our pathetic idols, and stop our quest to find ourselves as God 
and seek instead in him to be made into new men and new women. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.